So I want to thank you for, for the opportunity to allow me to have this presentation. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm going to talk about what I describe as rebel courts uh, in non-international armed conflicts. With rebel courts, I mean courts established by armed non-state actors. And uh, uh, this is a picture from New York Times. Uh, it's um, a picture of uh, seven uh, soldiers from the Syrian government who have been captured by rebels. Uh, it's actually a video, and in this video you can see how, how these men are killed. Uh, this is just one example. It's uh, a recurring phenomenon that non-state actors establish courts in non-international armed conflicts. Uh, so th this is an illustration. The reason why I show this picture is because one of the persons standing with the rifle, he, he ended up in Sweden and was prosecuted for uh, uh, killing these men. And he made the defense that uh, our group, the rebels, they had set up a court and these seven men who were killed, uh, they had been convicted by the court and he was merely implementing the sentence. That was his defense. Uh, hello. And so uh, I, I will first uh, talk about the problem, uh, a little bit about applicable international law, some policy considerations, and then I will talk about this case that ended up in Sweden. Uh, and uh, I have to make a disclosure that uh, uh, I was called as an expert by the court to give my opinion on this legal issue. So that's how I got involved in, in this case. So I will, when we talk about the case, I will uh, tell you a little bit what, what, what I said to the court and what the court, uh, how, how the court handled it. And then uh, we'll open up for questions. So uh, a reoccurring problem uh, is uh, these rebel courts. And I've listed uh, some uh, situations or conflicts when you have, ha have uh, observed this phenomenon. And uh, there's differences between these conflicts. Some are longer, some are shorter. Uh, the setup of these courts have been different. In some of these uh, conflicts, uh, the, these non-state actors, they've been quite uh, elaborate. Uh, they've set up colleges to train judges while as in others it's even non-lawyers who are performing duties as judges. So uh, it's, it's uh, great differences between these different situations, but it's uh, some of the examples that we can list. And uh, the problem is as follows, that uh, on the one hand there's a legitimate interest to uphold law and order also in territories controlled by non-state actors. I mean, life has to go on. Uh, these territories can be uh, outside the control of government for several years. Uh, so there's a legitimate interest to uphold law and order. Uh, on the other hand, uh, courts is something that we normally associate with the kind of the sovereign power of states. It's only states that can establish courts, uh, courts in the sense that they can issue rulings that are binding and have consequences for, for individuals. Uh, and uh, uh, one, one could speak about human rights law. There's uh, a significant body of law within human rights law that regulates courts and what they should do. Uh, I've written a little bit about that, but what I will focus on today 
is the law applicable during non-international armed conflict, what we normally describe as civil war. And uh, uh, I would imagine that several of you are familiar with humanitarian law, but maybe not all. But So this picture may be familiar to some of you, but for the others I, I will try to explain. So we could think about at least four different situations, peace, internal tensions, non-international armed conflict and national armed conflict. And the applicable law varies depending on the situation. Uh, so here in peace we have the applicable law is national law, it can be constitutional law and other statutes. We have international human rights law. We can have situations with internal tensions. It's not yet an armed conflict, uh, but it can be some violence. Uh, is, an example would be some countries during the so-called Arab Spring. I'm not thinking about Syria now, but let's think about, for example, Tunisia, Egypt or something. You had violence. It was not an armed conflict, but something was happening. Then, then you can have derogations, both to national law and human, human rights law. Then if we move over here, we have armed conflict. And then a new body of law kicks in. It's international humanitarian law, what we describe as the laws of war. And uh, the great body of that law is here in international armed conflict. We have the four Geneva Conventions. We have additional protocol one. The, the level of protection is less in non-international armed conflict. The applicable law is primarily Article 3 of the Geneva, for Geneva Conventions. So I, I will devote quite a lot of attention to this Article 3. Uh, and we also have additional protocol too. So these, this is the body of law that we're looking at. And then we also have customary international law here, which can fill part of this gap because we have a higher level of protection in international conflict. And we have a lower level here if we only look at the treaties. However, customary international law may fill part of that gap. Um, so that may be familiar to, to some of you, but maybe not all. Please, if you have any questions later on this, I can go back to this. Um, so if we look at Article 3, Common Article 3, um, we have uh, uh, what appears to be a contradiction. Uh, so first, we have to note it's applicable in armed conflict, of, not of an international character, so that's what we normally mean with civil war. Uh, and here it says that these rules in Article 3, they apply to each part of the conflict, so it's both the government and non-state actors. Uh, and here we have the contradiction. So on the one hand, these rules apply equally to all parties, but then if we look later here, it says that one of the violations, one of the potential crimes, is the passing of sentences and the carrying out of executions without previous judgment pronounced by a regularly constituted court. And this word regularly, that's something we kind of associate, that's something only states can do. So here we have a contradiction. On the one hand, we have the rule saying that it applies equally to all parties, and then we have this word regularly, which we associate with something that only states can do. Uh, and uh, these courts also have to offer all the judicial guarantees. Uh, so here, here, already here you can see oh, the main problem with these courts. Are they legal or not? Can rebels set up uh, regular courts? 
and uh, the states um, quite early understood that this is a problem and when they were negotiating the additional protocol one and two they took this into account uh, so we'll take a look now at additional protocol two of the Geneva Conventions article six so here we have article six it's quite long we're not going to go through all of it uh, we'll, 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 we'll we, we look at the chapeau here, the, the, the first section of this article. No sentence shall be passed and no penalty shall be executed on the person found guilty of an offence except pursuant to conviction pronounced by court offering the essential guarantees of independence and impartiality. And if we compare that to the previous slide, what is the difference? So it has essential guarantees of independence and impartiality. So, independence and impartiality, that is something new, but there's also these guarantees which are listed here. But what is missing here is this word regular. So, what the states did when they adopted additional protocol 2, they were aware of this problem. Uh, in essence, they introduced this article 6, which replaces the previous regulation. And they removed this word regular because they understood that this is, this is a problem. Uh, and uh, with this reading, you could argue that non-state actors, they can set up courts in non-international armed conflict, provided that they offer these guarantees. So that was also uh, my conclusion, what I, what I said to, 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 to the Swedish District Court, which had to deal with this. Now, if I continue, with the Rome Statute, uh, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court was adopted in 1998. And uh, as some of you may know, it was uh, uh, what they did is essentially during the negotiations, they took all of the relevant treaties and instruments and put it together in one instrument, in Article uh, 6, 7, and 8. And um, see, here, here we have. It's, it's quite long provision, this Article 8, but Article 8C, Roman 4, concerns additions uh, of sentences during a non-international armed conflict. And here it says, the passing of sentences and the carrying out of executions without previous judgment pronounced by a regularly constituted court, affording all judicial guarantees which are generally recognized as indispensable. So, uh, this is something that we, this is from Article 3, they took from Article 3. Then they have judicial guarantees. That's a, a phrase we can find in Article 75, subparagraph 4, additional protocol 1. Uh, so this is uh, a little bit strange. It appears as they just ignored additional protocol 2 from 1977. They, they went back to the phrase in 1949. And, and it's, it's also, uh, it's possible to understand why this happened. I mean, the negotiations in Rome, they were quite, quite tense. It was uh, several issues. I mean, this, uh, to kind of uh, define the crimes, were only one of the issues that they had to struggle with in Rome. It was many others. So they just took quite mechanically the phrases from different instruments without uh, thinking too much about it. 
However, um, in addition to the Rome Statute, there's also an instrument called the Elements of Crime, where they tried to elaborate on the definitions of the crimes. Uh, and this was adopted uh, three or four years later. So here we have the Elements of Crime. Uh, and here we have, I've cut out the relevant part from the Elements of Crime. So here they tried to define the criminalized behavior. And here we see, see, there was no previous judgment pronounced by court. So in that case, that's illegal if you convict somebody, if you kill somebody, if there's no previous. Or the court that rendered the judgment was not regularly constituted. So again, we have the same phrase. That is, it did not afford the essential guarantees of independence and impartiality, or the court that rendered judgment did not afford all other judicial guarantees generally recognized as indispensable under international law. So here, uh, first we have to note uh, that it's this independence and impartiality, which is from the more later document from 1977. Uh, and it's, it also uses this word or, and when they define regularly constituted, it doesn't say it has to be established by a state. So here it appears when they formulated the elements of crime, they tried to lower the threshold, in essence making it impossible also for non-state actors to establish courts. So that's uh, uh, the relevant treaty provisions. Now I'm moving on, and uh, uh, I will talk a little bit about the policy considerations. Um, so if a first policy consideration is that uh, these courts may deal with uh, various legal issues. Uh, my primary focus has been in cases which deals with criminal law, with the rebel courts that uh, deals with criminal cases, but they can take on other types of cases also. It can be administrative law, uh, civil disputes, and so on. A, a very uh, common problem is, uh, let's say you have territories which are controlled by, by rebels, and uh, you have people giving birth, uh, you have people entering into marriages, and they have to register this. Uh, they do it uh, before authorities established by rebels, it can be courts or uh, other institutions. Uh, and these people, later on, maybe in the same country, when the rebels lose the control of the territory, maybe these people, they move to other countries. Uh, what, what should you do with these legal acts? I mean, registering that somebody's born or that somebody's married, should you recognize it or not? Is this legal or not? Uh, so, uh, there may be reasons uh, to look at these different types uh, and uh, take that into consideration when you say it's legal or not. Um, so that's the first consideration. Uh, the second consideration is, uh, when I was confronted with this dilemma, uh, one way I, of approaching it was that I started to think what, what kind of situations would be suitable to have non-state actors handing out judgments when it comes to criminal law. 
Uh, and uh, so I came to think about two model situations. So the first model situation is uh, in these territories controlled by non-state actors, uh, you will probably have people who've worked in the judiciary or for the authorities before, either as judges or maybe some as policemen or in other capacities. And uh, let's say that these people, uh, they stay in that territory and after there's been a change of power and the power is in the hand of the non-state actors, these people, they resume their duties or continue with their duties and more or less do the same thing as they did before. Uh, they may even uh, apply the same law as they did before this change of power. So that's the first model situation where I would say that uh, such uh, decisions, judgments are legal. And when I say legal, I mean not necessarily that it's legal that the decisions will be recognized by regular courts in other countries or by courts in the same country. I mean legal in the sense that it's not war crimes. It's not prohibited in national humanitarian law. So when I say legal, I mean it's in a more narrow context that it's not war crimes. So let's say that uh, you have uh, a theft and uh, that's brought to a tribunal or court. Uh, a uh, trial is held and a conviction is uh, is uh, uh, is passed. Uh, it might we might say it's not legal in the sense that it's not recognized by other countries or not by the authorities of that state, but it's not the war crime. So we have to distinguish between uh, what, what what we mean with legal. The second model situation is uh, um, under international humanitarian law. Uh, all parties to the conflict have an obligation to prevent and sanction violations of international humanitarian law performed by, uh, if, if we're talking about commanders of their subordinates. Uh, and in order to prevent and to sanction violations of international humanitarian law, uh, you need to have courts. Otherwise, you would issue sanctions or sentences without kind of review process. So that's the second model situation uh, where you have non-state actors which are upholding discipline or uh, respect for the law among uh, their own forces. Um, now, uh, when I say these two model situations, one could probably conceive that there's additional situations. Um, a third potential situation is, let's say that uh, a rebel group uh, captures persons from the opposing side and these persons are suspected of war crimes. One could argue that uh, such trials would also be legal. Uh, however, and this is an important caveat, that soldiers of the opposing side cannot be punished solely on the grounds that they were fighting for another party under international humanitarian law. Um, uh, so, so one has to make several caveats here. I mean, normally during an international armed conflict between states, uh, we have a, a combatant privilege. In essence, that means that if you're a prisoner of war, uh, you cannot be punished 
uh, for, for taking part in, in the hostilities. And um, this uh, combatant privilege, it only exists in international armed conflict, it doesn't uh, exist in non-international armed conflict. So the question is, how can I still make this caveat? Do you have combatant privilege in non-international armed conflict? Uh, and uh, most uh, say no, there's no combatant privilege in non-international armed conflict. A rebel cannot say I'm a prisoner of war, you cannot prosecute me. Uh, I would say the following, that um, there's no combatant privilege. A rebel fighter uh, can be prosecuted under national law for, uh, for taking part in hostilities if they're captured by the government. However, uh, you cannot be punished for committing war crimes. I mean, just because of merely participating in the conflict. I mean, if you, if you respected the international humanitarian law when it comes to principle of distinction and proper, principle of proportionality, you cannot be prosecuted just for participating as the hostilities. That cannot be a war crime. Maybe it can be a crime under national law, but it cannot be a war crime. So, uh, I think this is an important caveat to do. If you have soldiers from the government or you have soldiers from, from, uh, from the non-state actors, they cannot be punished solely on the grounds that they were fighting for another party under international humanitarian law. Um, so, um, these uh, uh, situations which I've mentioned, they're, they're model situations. Um, they shouldn't be seen as the exclusive situations. If, 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 a, if a case doesn't fit in this model situation, it doesn't mean that uh, we, we can exclude the possibility that these courts were legal. It's just models or uh, a way to conceive when, when would this be, be legal. So it's not an exhaustive list. It doesn't introduce a different standard compared to what follows from Common Article 3 and Additional Protocol 2. So now I will speak a little bit about Sakan case. So Sakan is uh, this man on the left, and uh, he was fighting for a jihadist group in, in Syria, and these alleged crimes were committed in uh, spring 2012. Um, after taking, uh, being a member of, of this group, uh, he travels through Europe and ended up in Sweden. And in Sweden he applied for uh, refugee status and residence. Uh, he was granted residence. After that decision concerning residence, the police got hold of the video and his photos and decided to open an, uh, an investigation. Um, and it was during the investigation that he made the defense that there was uh, a court and uh, he acknowledged all the facts that he killed the person, so that was not an issue. Uh, but he made a defense that there was a court which offered these persons uh, adequate judicial guarantees and he was merely implementing the sentence. And there was uh, two judgments, so first from Stockholm District Court, where I was heard, then it was the Svea Court of Appeals, and the defense, they made an appeal to the Supreme Court of Sweden, but the Supreme Court of Sweden didn't grant leave to appeal. And the reason is that uh, the Supreme Court of Sweden 
only deals with issues, mainly legal issues and not facts. And the defense was mainly making an appeal concerning facts. Uh, I will get back to that. So that's why there was no need to appeal. Uh, I will speak a little bit about the Swedish uh, law on war crimes. Uh, we had a new law adopted uh, in 2013, which entered into force the 1st of July 2014. Uh, however, these acts were committed in spring 2012. So that means that uh, the Swedish prosecutors, the Swedish court, they have to apply the law that was in force prior to the 1st of July 2014. So that's why I'm showing you the old law. We have a new law now. Uh, the new law, I, I can tell you a little bit about the new law. It's a list of violations that constitute war crimes. It's a closed list, so if it's not on the list, it's not a crime. The old law, which was applicable in this case, it's open-ended. I will show you. Uh, a person is guilty of a grave breach, so it's the same word as you have in the Geneva Conventions, so this is a word from the Geneva Conventions, of a treaty or agreement, so that's easy to understand. And then it says here, generally recognized principle or tenant. This law, the original uh, wording is from the 1950s, so this is it's very old Swedish, or it's not the, the words we would use today. In essence, this means international customary law. So general tenant recognized, uh, general recognized principle of tenant, it's customary international law. Relating to international humanitarian law concerning armed conflicts. So what, what, what this uh, provision says is, you should go to the Geneva Conventions. You should look at customary international law. That's what this says. And it's open-ended because they have uh, five or six examples, but it's only examples. So in order to understand what is criminalized, you have to go to the Geneva Conventions. You have to go to customary international law. Um, here's a little bit about the facts. So uh, I've given you some already. Uh, so he was a member of a unit called Suleiman's Company and they were fighting with another group, the Arar al-Shamal Sermin Battalion, and they captured soldiers. This was captured by film. Uh, the film was brought out by a rebel who was discontent. He didn't like what the group was doing, so it was smuggled out of Syria and brought to New York Times. Uh, and Sakhan, he admitted the facts, but he made the defense that uh, there was a court and uh, he was merely implementing the judgment. Um, so uh, here is the key findings of the court. And uh, so first, uh, the district court admitted that the phrase regularly constituted may give the impression that it's only states that can do it. Uh, but the persuasive argument for the court, which was the decisive, was additional protocol 2, that was a shift. Uh, and uh, this was also commented in the ICRC commentary, so you can find that explicitly in, in the judgment. And in, in this, uh, if you look closer, the part that the court was quoting, it was uh, when the ICRC commentary goes through the negotiations, and that there was an agreement among the states that there was a contradiction and that they had to resolve it. So uh, the, the court took note of that. Uh, so, uh, and then the court accepted my, because I, I gave uh, the, the court these two model situations. 
So uh, they agreed that's kind of two situations where it would be legal. Uh, however, in this particular case, so they accepted that rebels can establish courts, uh, but in this particular case, uh, these courts have to also offer judicial guarantees. And uh, uh, there was none. Uh, and these were the flaws that was listed by the district court. Uh, they were composed of a mix of imams and judges. It was a mix of Islamic and Syrian law. Uh, and merely fighting on the opposing side was punishable. Uh, no right to defense counsel. There was strong evidence that torture was used during questioning in relation to these seven persons. Uh, from the time these persons were captured until their execution, it was only 41 hours. So very short time for trial, no appeal. Um, you can also see in the video that they're talking about revenge. Uh, so uh, the, the district court ruled that trial didn't take place. They even didn't acknowledge that it was a court at all. And if it was a court, uh, it wasn't offering due process guarantees. So he, he was convicted and, uh, uh, and uh, got life imprisonment. Now, for, for the defense, uh, this judgment was a partial success. And I mean, and then it was a defeat, but it was a partial success in the sense that they had convinced the court that non-state actors can establish court. So that was a success for the defense. So they made an appeal, and they were essentially arguing that there was due process guarantees, uh, and for that reason he shouldn't be convicted. But this is also the reason why the Supreme Court didn't give leave to appeal. I mean, the Supreme Court didn't give many reasons, but uh, when you think about it, uh, on the legal issue, the defense was successful. Rebels can establish courts. It was on the facts that the defense lost, that uh, uh, the court didn't offer due process guarantees. And that's also my understanding why the Supreme Court didn't offer leave to appeal. Uh, so, uh, I will now um, discuss a bit, kind of critical view on the case. Uh, so there was a blog post by Sommer, and this is his points of criticism, which I'm raising here, against the judgment. And uh, his criticism was mainly this reference to these model situations. Uh, and uh, one way of reading the judgment is that if you don't, if the case doesn't fit into these model situations, then the, the, the court is not legal. And Sommer find that problematic. He think we, the way I understand his criticism is that we shouldn't think about these model situations. Instead, we should only look at Article 3 and uh, Article 6 of the additional protocol too. And in essence, I agree with him. I mean, that's the requirements. It's common Article 3 and additional protocol too that we should look at. Uh, so I, I think this criticism is, is relevant. But again, um, uh, I'll just... And one should not see these as the only situations. It's just examples. It's not an exhaustive list when these rebel courts are, are legal. Uh, so that's uh, what I wanted to, to talk about. So now I'm happy to receive your questions.